Welcome to the Human Odyssey, the podcast about human-centered design. The way humans learn, behave, and perform is a science, and having a better understanding of this can help improve your business, your work, and your life. This program is presented by Sophic Synergistics, the experts in human-centered design. So, let's get started on today's Human Odyssey. Hello and welcome to the Human Odyssey podcast. I'm your host, Lisa. I'm here with Cynthia, Brittany, and our guest, David Gabriel. Today, we're going to be exploring how virtual reality can benefit human-centered design. Our guest today is David Gabriel. He is an Army veteran and an industrial designer working as a VR developer and human factor specialist in the Dynetic Space Division. Thanks for joining us today, David. Hey, happy to be here. Glad to have you. So for everyone's understanding, I wanted to briefly describe VR, kind of define it out. So it's a computer-generated digital environment that can be experienced and interacted with as if that environment were real. And this kind of brings us to why VR is a crucial component in human-centered design um, in certain industries. Because VR allows stakeholders and users to experience that environment that maybe has yet to be built or that might be unsafe, or that really maybe just is difficult to access. It provides an excellent opportunity to prototype and assess design and is a great resource for user training. So this kind of brings us to um, another um, component of human-centered design and why it's crucial is that it can provide um, quite a good cost savings to businesses. And I don't know, Cynthia, if you wanted to speak to that. Yeah, and so you know, I think the key here from a human-centered design perspective is is early and often, and so we're always looking for new fundamental ways and innovative ways to get at aspects of user concerns, constraints, and you know, optimization in the most cost-effective manner. And so, you know, AR, VR, and you know, what's what's coming down the pike, where you have kind of this blend of augmented reality to where everything is a little bit more um, integrated brings with it a whole host of you know promising type of activities that you can you can do without even cutting metal and so it allows us to you know the word agile gets thrown around a lot in design and it allows you to do a lot of rapid prototyping and a lot of iterative design you know almost you know within seconds minutes and sometimes overnight you know I don't want to go too far because it it is really hard to render environments (laughs) in VR so I don't want to minimize that but it has incredible utility and it has limitations too. So I think this discussion will, will be really interesting for those who, who are um, stakeholders in ARVR and also um, are interested in how it applies, you know, across industries. So that brings us to some of the different industries that VR is used in. It's used in a wide range of industries, including oil and gas, aerospace and aviation, Um, architecture and construction, and the government also uses it as well. And now um, companies are using it to train their employees where, as I mentioned before, in certain situations that could be unsafe, such as like a fire and you're trying to train the employee how to exit a building, or just certain situations that are difficult to access that you're able to train and really um, in put the user in that environment so they can experience it as it would be. 
Um, so that kind of takes us to, um, especially VR and aerospace, as we have Gabe here with us. I was wondering, Gabe, if you could kind of just talk about why VR is necessary um, for aerospace and particularly the prototyping that's done. Absolutely. So, you know, I've been able to implement VR uh, in a very in a way that really assists the conceptual development. Um, you know, everything typically starts off as you know a napkin sketch somewhere, right? Somebody's got that initial idea, and it's really important to foster that uh, that looseness in the beginning as long as possible, because that's where your design really can. Uh, like has the opportunity to change in extremely dynamic ways before you start to add the the overwhelming amount of engineering uh, requirements and restraints to the design. So before you ever bring it into CAD, before you ever get to you know have to do something like that, you have this sort of magical time where you can uh, you know affect the design and. This is this is really where I've found that VR has been extremely helpful because, you know, we were able to take something that needs to be human centric and we can bring it into VR and we can introduce a human element before we have um, any other requirements or restrictions. And if you can start from that position, then the compromises that you make, you know that you you know some of the consequence. You don't you never know everything, but you at least begin to have an understanding of the compromises that you're making from the human perspective. And I think it's incredibly powerful to start from that position instead of uh, levying all of your uh, requirements against the human you know the human needs. You start with the human needs and then work your way back from there. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, and, you know, Gabe brings up a lot of interesting points. You know, I think all too often in design, we get stuck on driving requirements with solution. And, you know, the the time frame that he's talking about is like a really sweet spot in design where you have the ability to let cre- creativity run free but also gives you the capability to do those initial, um, you know, assessments, you know, pro con assessments of, you know, what, what types of designs could pass must muster and, and make it through to the next iteration without kind of putting all your eggs in one or two baskets before you've had the ability to run through a lot of different design permutations quickly to identify where you're going to have the major roadblocks or not and, you know, pursue down that lane. And again, that also helps you hone in from a cost-effective perspective pretty quickly versus spending a little lot of time building, you know, functional mock-ups. Yeah, Gabe, can you walk us through a little bit, you know, if people haven't had experience with, you know, what it takes to be able to introduce, you know, a human model into a CAD model in VR, like what is a little bit of that behind the scenes work that has to be done um, in order to have that that human modeling capability within VR? Sure. So, um, you know, there's programs out there that exist already that will give you um, some some human modeling capability. Um 
like like Gravity Sketch, for example, has a, a mannequin already that is fully posable that you can size to whatever anthropometric needs that you have. Um, and there's a way to bring in additional models that if you wanted a spacesuit, you can do that. You, it, it does require uh, some understanding of it, it. It starts to blur the lines a little bit where you're, you're not necessarily working just in VR. You start to have to know a little bit about like animation and how to add you know, bones to a mesh body and, and inverse kinematics. And you have to understand a little bit like how the body actually moves to start to set it up. So, um, you know, uh, like a little bit of just general understanding of, of the human skeleton and, and things like that uh, are really, really helpful. So once you, once you kind of get past that and you, you have, you, so like in my experience, I've had to teach myself a lot of how to set up some basic animation um, because you, there's that overlap between them and, and not just overlap in, in that understanding, but overlap in a very technical sense, because uh, traditionally animation has been done with, uh, you know, for the things you see on TV, like Pixar and things like that. It's, it's done with me uh, what, what you would call mesh based modeling. And that means that it doesn't have any parametric data to it, which and parametric data basically means that, you know, you haven't assigned specific measurements. Uh, you could scale a mesh model up or down as much as you would like. Uh, it, it doesn't care. But a parametric model, you know, it has very specific, you know, uh, data attached to it for, for how big or how small any, any part of it is for tolerances. So it makes it tricky to bring, you know, a, uh, a, a very advanced engineering model that is, you know, has screw bosses and everything that has extremely tight tolerances and bring it into this almost squishy environment with a mannequin um, so you there there's definitely ways to to do that like you can convert that model into an into a mesh model and things like that but that basis of starting with you know uh the the mesh modeling that's that's what vr likes also just from a rendering perspective if you bring in a model that is straight from uh, a solidworks program or something like that or, or creo or or katia or any of these you know the major modeling softwares they're they're not optimized for vr so you you do run into some limitations where vr can't necessarily render it exactly as it was built um but there there's lots of ways to work around that and as the technology keeps getting better and better you know we, we have more and more tools to do that um but yeah that's something really uh key i think too in in terms of thinking about the benefits and the utility of, of modeling in this environment and so human movement especially in aerospace is is very different than what we're used to terrestrially and so even even within different space environments like when you think about lower earth orbit then when you think about lunar gravity and then what we're going to experience mars they're all all different in terms of how they impact how we move and so you know, these things are really hard for us to replicate, even with the best mock-ups and situation on, on, on Earth. And so, you know, 
VR, AR gives us the ability to put this into a digital space where we can float and we can simulate to the best of our abilities based off anthropometric models of how um, people will fit into a space and potentially, um, you know, navigate in where there are impacts. And also, you know, there is an element of considering behavior and how it changes. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to minimize this utility for on earth because the behavior component comes in in terms of how people interact and move here on earth, but it's, it's a lot more complicated from a design perspective and a lot more expensive to try to model it for aerospace. Yeah. And I think it's important to note too, that, you know, we're not saying that VR or AR um, environments completely negate the need for physical mock-ups or prototypes, but it does give you that agility. Um, Going back to, you know, that word you used early on, Cynthia, you know, agile, and it gives you that ability to include the human in that conceptual or beginning stage. You know, when you're making foundational decisions about how something is structured or how it's laid out, you know, you can incorporate the human models into that story early before you have access to mock-ups or prototypes. Absolutely. And and especially for VR, your 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 next stage after that would be like a, a low fidelity mock-up, right? And you would still want to verify all of the things you think you learned in virtual reality, but ideally you know, you would be much further ahead because even, you know, if you're going to make a lo-fi mock-up, you still have to build a model of it. You still have to get it ready to manufacture and, and all that stuff. And you can bring that into VR and you can say, okay, this is what we're planning to do. These are the tests we want to run. Let's bring in our mannequin and just, you know, make sure that this is all working out correctly. And you can just do that as many times as you want. So by the time you actually start to, by the time you actually decide, okay, here we go, we're going to make our mock-up now, you can, you can, go into it with a reasonable sense of, of security that what you're, the next step you're taking um, isn't going to require a lot of backtrack, that you've, you've vetted this design as, as thoroughly as, as the technology will allow you right now. Um, so that um, kind of brings us to our next point that we wanted to talk about, that VR does have some hurdles. And one of the major ones that um, causes users to not accept the technology is discomfort. And um, that is definitely a problem that needs to be considered when VR is designed. And I was wondering if you could kind of speak to what kind of ways you can kind of design out discomfort or minimize it when you are developing VR. Sure. Yeah. So part of the reason uh, people get discomfort is from the environment moving without them moving, right? So if you do uh, what's called seamless locomotion, and you just press a button on the controller and you just start to move in that direction, um, that can cause a lot of discomfort. The other way is often uh, not having high enough frame rate within VR itself. So you, it's really necessary to keep the frame rate uh, above or, or around 60 to 90 frames per second. And that's uh, that can be a little tricky uh, given just our technology limitations and, and what platforms you're running it on. So if you have a large desktop that's got all the graphics cards, you know, in the world, um, you know, you're going to do a lot better than if you're trying to run an application on an Oculus that isn't connected to anything and it, all the processing is done right there in the headset. Um, so the way that I navigate that is I, I generally don't use seamless locomotion um, just because for, for that reason exactly, uh, that it, it, it tends to cause people discomfort. 
And ideally, you know, I want the environments that I create to be able to be used by anybody. Um, so what I do is I use a teleport feature where you, uh, you can shoot an arc in a direction and it just teleports you to that spot. And it, it is an, an unnatural way of moving. Um, so it, it makes you sometimes aware that you're in VR, which is something you're always trying to avoid, right? You're always trying to keep people sort of uh, forgetful that, that they're in VR. But I think that it, it, people quickly adapt to it and they can, you know, uh, just sort of take, take that in and then their brain just kind of clicks and says, okay, this is how I move here. And they just go about their way. Um, so, the, so that really leaves frame rate, and that's up to the designer or the person creating the environment to, to monitor and make sure that everything is, is working out. And there's, there's tons of ways to, to do that. Um, you know, different kinds of lighting can affect your frame rate. Different kinds of materials that you want to render can affect your frame rate. The size of your models. Um, there's, there's ways that you can bring in a, uh, like a, a rectangle and then put stickers on it essentially and make it look fully textured or, or like a much more complex shape without having to actually bring in a model with all those edges that have to be defined. So if you if you actually go into VR and, and you play any of the games that exist, you know, on, um, on the Oculus headset, uh, one of the good ones for an example like this is, uh, I think it's called Robo Recall. You're ro you go around, you shoot a bunch of robots, but there's a lot of great lessons to be learned in that where there's things you can grab and interact with. And that's where that's where I decided to use teleportation as transportation because that's that's what that game has. And uh, it works really well. And you can look around and there's like cars and walls and things. And if you look, if you get up close to any of the vehicles, you'll see it's a very simple shape uh, with a, a, a rendered sticker on it, essentially. But from a distance, you can't you don't you don't really tell that that's the case. So the you know having l l uh, what you would call uh, levels of detail is is really important, and you can even do stuff where the things that you're close to are rendered really well. And the, as they as they go out to the distance, you don't need as much rendering power because you can't really see it anyway. So as you get closer to it, you can make you know that particular thing come into focus. So there's lots of ways to optimize VR for comfort um, and and to accommodate whatever system you're running on. Yeah, and before we leave this point that I think is is pretty universally important to every industry because a lot of industries are also looking at this as immersion training when you can't put people into the environment even on Earth. You know, when you think about surgical suites, you don't want to you know train somebody necessarily on on patients you know as the first time, and so. You know, immersion in, into the environment is pretty key. And, you know, we've actually helped some of the tech companies work on this a little bit in their design of, you know, the the goggles. And again, when you think about the human form, it's, it's very dynamic. And so there's even challenges within the same person on any given day based off of how your body composition is. And so the goggles might fit perfectly for your face and form one day, but let's say the next day you might be dehydrated or experiencing some other element of, of um, fluid shift in your body. And now, you know, the goggles don't work so much for you. So, you know, 
I think the industry is really looking hard at how do you do this a little bit differently too, to maybe wear goggles like that are not required to, to impart that immersion effect. And I think that's also going to be key when we talk about environments like aerospace for training, you know, like forget design for a second. How do you get people who aren't traditionally astronauts or don't necessarily have space experience ready to go and feel like they've had that experience in a training perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Even just the hardware, you know, it can 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 be an issue. You know, you've got like your sinus cavities all right here, and that's exactly right where the mask goes. So ex- exactly like what you're saying. Um, there's days where we'll all put a I'll put a headset on, and 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 it's just very uncomfortable. And there's different companies that do it better than others. Like the well, the Oculus Two is definitely better than the Oculus One. Um, the Vive headset. Is, is slightly more comfortable than probably both of them. Um, but right now, it's like we're limited by how small the technology can be. And again, going back to like, you know, what, what kind of system are you trying to develop for? And that will dictate, you know, how much weight you have on your head. Also like neck strain, um, eye strain. Typically though, in, in eye strain in, in VR is, is, much, is much less, um, but yeah. From my understanding, the more a user is able to kind of interact with that environment, the more that can also help with discomfort. Is that kind of your experience as well? Um, well, so I've done, uh, so I was in a virtual environment that was a, uh, a mock-up of a space station and you're, you're in a zero G environment and, you, the way to move around, you had to gr- actually grab onto handholds and things like that, and it it's it's still a little tricky, like even for me. And I, I spend a reasonable amount of VR uh, amount of time in VR uh, to to grab onto something and then like push off from it, but still know that my body isn't moving. Um, that can that that's still I don't know if that helped or not, because uh, it was like starting and stopping. Because it was like you grab it, and your body is supposed to you're you're moving, you're moving, you're moving, and then you stop, and you almost want to like move forward <laughs> after you've stopped yourself. Um, so I'm not sure. I know that it, in a terrestrial environment, you know, when you have the floor or something like that, like that's that's really helpful. But you have to come up with clever ways to change the floor level like if the floor isn't a perfectly flat surface in your virtual environment but the world that you're living in is a perfectly flat surface how do you make that transition right like how do you go up a set of stairs um but also not have those stairs exist so um again this is kind of where like the teleportation method works really well you can kind of you know jump up where you need to go and i think the brain accepts that pretty quickly uh and then seamless locomotion if you were to use that you kind of just glide up the stairs um so it's tricky and then i you know i've thought about like well what if you know if i could sync up the vr environment with the real world environment perfectly and i could have a set of stairs built here and have it line up exactly with where the stairs are in vr then maybe that would work um 
haven't I haven't gotten it I haven't figured it out quite yet, but I, I think I think it could work, but I think you're gonna start to you start to do that too much, you're gonna run into uh safety issues. Because no matter how perfect you, you make it, there's still a chance that you know you could trip on a regular set of stairs without it being in VR. Well, I think you're sort of making the case for like a blend, right? An augmented reality situation too, to kind of help with like that next generation, you know, leap once you're, you've kind of exhausted the utility of VR, right? Absolutely. And that's really where it's important to remember, like, is this a good application for VR? And, and it isn't always a good application. And AR has an entirely different set of, of uses, um, but they run very similarly from how you build the environment, how you develop the UI, how, how you treat it is, is extremely similar. I, I think of them really as like siblings uh, when, when it comes to development because a lot of the, uh, especially the UI opportunities that you have in VR translate extremely well over to VR. Now, one of the things that is nice to do in VR is to keep things similar. So like if you wanted somebody to go through a door, you would want to have them reach for a door handle. If you want somebody to interact with, you know, a, a computer, you would want them to go up and push a button on the computer because you can do that. If you're doing a uh, an AR environment, you can still do that, but instead of you know creating the door and creating the button on the door, you can create a signal that you know highlights the door handle, or or a, the button on the computer that you want them to push. So, you know the the way you do it, I think, ends up being or can end up being very similar. What the what ends up being a problem, I think, in in VR is instead of taking advantage of this idea of keeping somebody in VR mentally, they'll throw impossible screens in impossible places sometimes, or you'll have um, buttons that just pop up out of nowhere when there's opportunities to put them in places that keep the immersion uh, alive. Um, and I think so, a lot yeah, of what you're bringing up too is a phenomenon and, you know, human factors, human centered design, we, you know, that, um, relies on mapping. So, you know, mapping your expectations, mapping your understanding of how the environment works to kind of get at that seam seamlessness indirectly. Yep, absolutely. And, and it doesn't always have to be that way. There's definitely, um, there's, there's opportunities in VR that you would want to, to go beyond exactly what you would find in, in a real world environment. Um, but I think it's just, you know, it's important to go back to that, back to those scenarios and say, is this helping the environment? Is this, is this actually making it more immersive? Is it making it more enjoyable? Or is this, you know, does this feel unnatural to the user? Yeah, another good point. What's your objective? <laughs> yep. Brittany, did you have any other questions? Um, I guess just switching gears a little bit, um, you know, talking about logistically kind of how does some of the, these things work, especially when we, you know, think about these big integrated design projects, you know, there might be multiple different um, entities working on different areas of the design. So how do we get everyone together, um, you know, to be able to look at one integrated 
um, you know, CAD model in VR. So Gabe, can you talk a little bit about the ability to, to collaborate within VR, um, you know, virtually without being in person? How do we get, um, you know, people to assess um, an integrated design solution? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's, uh, there's, there's several options for that. One of them is Gravity Sketch. They have a, like a, uh, like a creative room that you can bring a model in and, and several people in from all over the world uh, into the same space and review a model, make notes uh, and create whatever uh, models in, in it that you might like. Um, like for example, you know, if you were looking at a, a car model, you can bring the stakeholders into that room and they can draw notes on the car or they can move you know, steering wheels around and, and do whatever um, in, in a collaborative environment, which is extremely powerful. And I know people at, uh, I have some friends that work at General Motors and I know they, they use this program a lot and it's, it's pretty cool. Then uh, Unity is another rendering uh, engine as well as Unreal Engine. And they both have ways to do collaborative spaces through their own servers where, where it gets a little tricky is, you know, when you run into like security requirements and, you know, what, uh, how do you keep your proprietary data proprietary? Right. So it really depends on what, um, what your, I think your, your security needs really end up being the, the biggest driving factor for collaboration. But there is that ability to, oh, you know, with minimal hardware, bring in people to assess, you know, without flying someone in and they get that immersive experience. Um, you said something interesting, too, that I wanted to touch on, because I think one of the important abilities of VR is not only to be able to assess design um, from like a functionality or an engineering perspective, but from the stakeholder, you know, buy-in perspective. I think if you have a design solution that you're trying to you know, argue that might cost a per certain percentage more or is divergent from, you know, the current baseline, I think being able to um, bring in decision maker makers or customers into that immersive space and give them, you know, that experience, you can better, you know, make your case and communicate your vision. Um, you know, if there's justification or rationale behind, you know, why you want a certain change, it's easier to communicate that by seeing versus just, you know, going through a, a chart deck or data. Oh, absolutely. You know, you put a headset on somebody, especially somebody who's never been in VR before, and they're just like, oh my gosh. Like, if you could see their eyes, you know their eyes are like this big. And uh, it's it's pretty exciting to, to get people in for the first time, especially. But I think it, it does another thing, aside from just the wow factors, I think it builds trust in that the like you can actually walk up to this design. It exists even if it's just in this virtual environment, um, like you can sit there and look at it and say, here it is. And uh, any any doubts that, you know, maybe they couldn't make it or they couldn't do it this certain way or or it needed to change to be something else, you can make, can make pretty strong cases right there. Um, it's like you've got levels of of that convincing where you can you can put a, a proposal together and give them a written document and say, okay, here's a bunch of words and it means that I can do this thing or that we should do this thing. And then you can, you know, make a CAD model and you can make some renders and have a still image and you say, well, here it is, here's the idea. And you know, that can, you know, bring some buy-in as well. But if you 
you can get them into a virtual environment to see it in all its glory and, and get them to walk around and interact with it. That's just like the next step, you know? Yeah. I think if a picture is worth a thousand words, VR has got to be worth a million. <laughs> yeah. All right. I think that closes up our topic today with virtual reality in relation to human-centered design. Thank you for listening to the Human Odyssey podcast. Check out our social media platforms for more human-centered content. The Human Odyssey is presented by Sophic Synergistics, the experts in human-centered design. Find out more at sophicsynergistics.com. Get smart. Get Sophic smart. Get Sophic smart.